BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends. It's Friday, December 23rd, the day before Christmas Eve, and all of our roundtable regulars are already out celebrating the holidays. So we have a special treat for you today. Instead of looking back at the news of the week, this Friday and next, we're going to look back at four of the best political books of the year whose authors we've interviewed on an earlier podcast. We start with two very important books by David Korn and Dana Milbank examining what the hell happened to the Republican Party. First, David Korn, Washington bureau chief of the great Mother Jones magazine. As he proves in his book, American Psychosis, it didn't start with Donald Trump. David traces the crack up of the Republican Party all the way back to Barry Goldwater, if not earlier. Hello, David Korn, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Good to be with you, Bill. Uh, congratulations on the new book, American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy. Now, David, first of all, let me let me just ask, psychosis, I mean, that's a pretty powerful word. I mean, severe mental disorder, Well, that's, that's the Republican Party today? Well, when you are detached from reality, I mean, that's psychosis. When you don't understand or acknowledge reality, when you believe something that is not real. If you look at the Republican Party right now, its raison d'etre is the lost cause of Donald Trump's election. That is that it was stolen from mm-hmm. him. That is a big lie. We know that. and But yet millions of Americans adhere to this. And it's become the motivating force of the Republican Party. Uh, you had not just thousands of people at January 6th, but you have still, all this time later, millions of Americans who say the election was stolen, that, jo- that Joe Biden did not win legitimately. There is no reason to believe that. There's no evidence. Every time I hear Marjorie Taylor Greene or somebody else get up there and say the election was stolen, I go, my God, don't you have some some obligation to present evidence to back this up? We know that during the January 6th hearings, one of them, Rusty Bowers, the Speaker of the Arizona State House, said that Rudy Giuliani told him in the post-election period, we have no evidence, we just have theories. Mm. And so the fact that this has been so firmly absorbed by millions of Republican voters and encouraged by not just Donald Trump, but most of the Republican leadership, is a form of political psychosis. Well, the key point of your book, at least that I took away to, to take away from your book, David, is that it didn't this psychosis didn't start with Donald Trump, right? First of all, it's been uh 
very uh, common in the, among the Republican Party of these these extreme the presence of these extremists. But even beyond that, um, I mean, you go back to this is part of the backstory of America, right? Uh, we're a nation that kind of has always been fueled by conspiracies and paranoia and wackos. Back to the Salem witch trials, for example. Right. I mean, I, I, there's a chapter in the book that just talks about how paranoia and conspiracy theory have long been part of American public life right. and American politics. And that's been true on, on both sides, um, not just you know the Republican side. You had the Illuminati scare of the early 1800s, then the anti-Masonic conspiracy theory that led to the anti-Masonic party. You've had anti-Catholicism that's been, you know, part of a conspiracy theory that was been used by politicians. But what I really, you know, the bulk of the book, the real, the book really takes right. off after World War II. And what, and, and what I describe and chronicle is that the Republican Party for the last 70 years has consistently exploited and encouraged extremism. And that could be paranoia, uh, uh, bigotry, native nativism, um, all sorts of far right fanaticism. That the party has courted it, has encouraged it, and you know to different degrees and in different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that Donald Trump hasn't invented anything new; he's just put it center stage. You can go back to McCarthy in the early 1950s, and what he did was to claim that America, the American government, the U.S. government, was being run by people who were Soviet agents, who were plotting to destroy the America and hand it over to uh, Moscow. I mean, he named names. He said that the leader of this plot was George uh, C. Marshall. He was the army chief of staff in World War II, helped win the war. He helped save Europe with the Marshall Plan. And he was at this point secretary of defense. And here's Joe McCarthy saying he is literally in charge of a cabal that has the the expressed purpose of destroying the United States from within. Not that they're wrong, not that their policies are bad and ill-advised, but that he was purposefully and actively trying to weaken the United States so the Soviet Union could take it over. And the Republican Party, this point in time, lionized Joe McCarthy. They saw that he was winning elections. He was winning elections for other Republicans. And he was exploiting fear and unease that had set upon America in the post-war period with Cold War tensions and this new thing we had, you know, we we were coming to grips with, nuclear terror and the prospect of a nuclear war. He so he was both encouraging and exploiting that fear amongst millions of Americans. And he was telling them something that wasn't true. And right. most Republicans knew that George C. Marshall was not running a plot, but they went along and it was very, very effective. Now in the you know 70 years since then, Republicans let, let me let me interrupt you if I can, because what I found so stunning about that history, uh, that chapter of yours, is that here is Dwight Eisenhower, right, running for president on a train with Joe McCarthy in Wisconsin. And he, Eisenhower, who was Marshall's buddy, who appointed Marshall's secretary of defense, who served with him in World War II, 
and Eisenhower caved and refused to criticize Joe McCarthy or defend Marshall against him. Right. In fact, it's one of my favorite stories in the book. They're on a train together campaigning in Wisconsin, whistle-stopping. McCarthy was up for uh, re-election at the same time as Eisenhower was running for election in 1952 for president. And Eisenhower hated the fact that McCarthy was going after his good friend, uh, George Marshall, his comrade from, from the days in World War II. And he asked a speechwriter to put a paragraph in his big speech, the end of this tour that was going to be at Marquette University, which is where McCarthy went to school and law school. He asked him to put in a paragraph that basically attacked McCarthy, though not by name, and defended Marshall. It was a little bit oblique, but everybody would have known right. that this was an attack on McCarthy and Eisenhower distancing himself. On the train that afternoon, as it was chugging through Wisconsin, uh, the Republican governor of Wisconsin, the head of the Republican Party, the RNC, and Sherman Adams, the Republican governor of New Hampshire, who was Dwight Eisenhower's chief of staff, saw this draft and they freaked out. He said, yeah. you, you can't do this. McCarthy is one of the leaders of the party, but we need Wisconsin in, to win the election. And more importantly, perhaps, McCarthy had helped the Republican Party win over Catholic voters. He was Catholic, of course, and Catholics had primarily primarily been in the Democratic column for decades mm -hmm. for all sorts of historical reasons. But because of McCarthy's virulent anti-communism, Catholics were drawn to the man. And if Eisenhower attacked McCarthy, that would alienate voters in Wisconsin, they believed, and alienate Catholic voters across the country. They you know, went to him and said, you can't do this. He looked at them and he said, okay, take it out. And then, <laughs> he, gave, and then he gave a speech that night that the Milwaukee Journal said was light McCarthyism. It was you know, basically echoing McCarthy's charges a little less pointed and not naming names. Yeah. So he totally caved. And, you know, in the years since then, every Republican president or a presidential candidate has in some way or another made a devil's deal. Sometimes they haven't seen it that way. Sometimes they wanted to do it mm -hmm. with right-wing extremism, whether it was Nixon and the Southern strategy and making a deal with segregationists, or whether it was Ronald Reagan embracing the moral majority at a time when its leaders were literally calling for the execution of homosexuals, of gay Americans, or it was George W. Bush making a deal with the Christian Coalition and Pat Robertson to help him defeat um, John McCain, mm -hmm. yep. um, the Tea Party and John Boehner, all the way up to Trump. There's always been some element of the Republican Party. This is their dark history, a side that they don't like to talk about, where they've been taking advantage of, capitalizing on far-right resentment, grievance, paranoia, and, and fear and hatred. And in fact, you begin the book with a scene from the Republican convention in San Francisco with uh, Nelson Rockefeller uh, standing up and trying to save the party. This is where the Barry Goldwater was nominated, trying to save the party from the John Birch Society, right? But yes, yeah, same the John, thing. The John Birch Society was like McCarthyism on steroids. 
you know, they, you know, they were founded by a, a guy who was a crazy lunatic conspiracy theorist, Robert Welch, who believed that the communists had infiltrated virtually every PTA across America, every union shop, every museum, every school, every corporation, and both parties. In fact, he said that Eisenhower was a communist agent <laughs> being run by his, being handled by his brother Milton um, Eisenhower, uh, you know, uh, uh, another secret communist. He was certifiably nuts, and he created the John Birch Society in the late fifties. And by 1964, it had a hundred thousand or more members. But these members were dedicated foot soldiers in the Barry Goldwater presidential campaign. Yep. And they helped Goldwater defeat defeat Nelson Rockefeller, a liberal and moderate Republican, in the Republican presidential primary of that year. And Goldwater, you know, had done all he could for the last for the years prior to that to make sure that they were not excommunicated from the Republican Party. There were moderate Republicans and others who thought that these wackos in the John Birch Society, that the party needed to disavow them and distance itself from them. Uh, Goldwater was willing to distance himself from Welch because of his own, Welch's particular mm -hmm. crazy remarks, but he wanted to keep the John Birch Society in the tent and on his side. And it, he did. It worked. It helped It helped him get the nomination. And at the convention you mentioned in San Francisco at the Cow Palace in the summer of 1964, the moderate Republicans tried one last stand and they put, they proposed a platform plank that denounced the extremism of the Communist Party, the Ku Klux Klan, and the John Birch Society. Right. And when Nelson Rockefeller went to speak in support of this provision, this resolution in front of the entire convention, it was a it was a near riot. The delegates and other people in the crowd hooted and jeered at him. They threw stuff at him. Uh, reporters there feared that violence would break out, and they shouted down uh, Rockefeller, and they voted down the measure. Uh, they did not want to be on record as denouncing or criticizing the extreme paranoid anti-communism of the John Birch Society. And then a night or two later, Barry Goldwater made his, fam you know, his famous speech in which he said extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. So when extremism had become an issue in the campaign and then was an issue at the, at the party convention, he, I don't know, what's beyond doubling down, tripling down, quarterly down, <laughs> yeah. he just went all in on being in favor of extremism. And of course, it, you know, this all led to, his, to a disastrous defeat for Goldwater and Republicans in 64. But, but what it did also was to bring all these extremists into the mm -hmm. Republican Party. They stayed there. They did the work. They took over party apparatuses across the country. And they were the ones who years later brought about the Reagan revolution. Right. And so from Barry Goldwater and Joe McCarthy and the Reagan revolution, and you got Newt Gingrich. What I guess what you're saying is when Trump got there, right, 
the the ground was already plowed, right? The seeds were already planted. It was already fertile soil for Donald Trump to come in and 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 take the extremists from the fringe to center stage. What he did was to take a long practiced tradition of the Republican Party that they had kept mainly, mm-hmm. not all the time, to the side, right, and bring it to the front and center of the stage and put it in the spotlight. Um, Mitt Romney, when he ran, he he embraced Donald Trump, who was a birther, and basically said birtherism is fine within the party. So he was trying to you know show that he could speak to those people in an indirect way. Uh, John Boehner had romanced the Tea Party that had argued, I mean, quite literally, you remember this, we're not that old, um, that the Tea Party argument was that Barack Obama was literally a secret Muslim socialist born in Kenya who had a secret plan to destroy the U.S. economy so he could impose a totalitarian totalitarian dictatorship. Uh, Glenn Beck said that every night on Fox, and who was on the show with him? John Boehner, other Republicans, Sarah Palin. They were validating and authenticating this crazy conspiracy theory stuff because they wanted these people voting for the Republicans in the midterm election, which they did, and helped elect John Boehner speaker. So this has always been done. You know, Donald Trump just made it the core of his political project. You know, he didn't bother with the niceties of, well, here's my policy plans. Here's what I'm going to do about the infrastructure and taxes and housing and healthcare. No, he just went straight for the fear and the exploitation of grievances and resentments and latching onto that extremist power. Now, it was, I think, an open question when he began whether it would be successful. There's always been different strains within, or I would say, there's always been tension within the Republican Party between Republicans who care about policy and want to do things, and you know, conservative things that you and I might disagree with, but that's what they, they're there for. Yeah, right. And Republicans who just want to, you know, do whatever they can to get elected, and if that means exploiting fear and resentments, they'll do that. You know, there's always been that tension there, and often campaigns have had to do both at the same time. Well, Trump just said, "Screw that." You know, yeah. I'm just going in on 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 the far right extremism, and he embraced Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist. He, you know, uh, when people said, you know, shouted at his at, at his rallies, "Get rid of Muslims," he said, "Yeah, we're going to look into that." Mm. Yeah, you know, so um, he just you know took what had been done. He did more of it, and wasn't shy about it. Again, we remember this is not that long ago. There were many voices still in the Republican Party as Trump ascended who spoke out against him and warned that this is not where the party should go. Lindsay, you, you, you quote this in your book. I've got your book open here, page 287. <laughs> Lindsay, Lindsay Graham, quote, we should have basically kicked him out of the party. Uh, you've got even Glenn Beck who said, that uh, Trump represented uh, a threat to possible extinction-level event for American democracy and capitalism. So how did Trump succeed in taking over? The party, again, basically just caved? 
it's not about Donald Trump. It's mm, about yeah. the Republican base, right? Yeah. I mean, if Donald Trump, you know, could embrace a conspiracy theorist. He can, you know, promote um, election denialism. He can incite a riot. And if enough, you know, Republican voters said, that's too much for me. I don't want that crazy. Then it wouldn't go anywhere or it would end. It would peter out. But what, you know, the Republicans discovered, I think to some of their horror, is that what the party had been doing for decades, Donald Trump did so well that it, you know, it became a core tenet of the Republican base. And, you know, in some ways you can look at what happened with Sarah Palin in 2008 saying, you know, that Barack Obama was not a true American. He didn't understand America and he was palling on with terrorists. And you had those campaign rallies where people were shouting, kill him, you know, kill him off with his head. And, you know, and McCain, you know, we liked John McCain in a lot of ways. I knew him. I liked a lot of things about John. But he, you know, went along with that. He did not stop that happening during these campaigns. And that fed into the Tea Party antipathy right. and, and, and fear mongering. And so I think the as the Republicans did this over the years, they radicalized the Republican voter. So by the time Trump comes along, he you know either recognizes that and intuits that, or you know thinks it's a, you know they put, places his money on on this bet, and you know it's almost an unstoppable force. They want the red meat, they want the extremism, and the rest of the party, you know, which has played footsie with extremism over these years, you know, has lost control. I mean, John Banner lost control; he had to leave. The speakership mm -hmm. before the Tea Party, you know, elected Republicans were about to mutiny against him. You know, Mitt Romney, when he ran in 2012, as I said a moment ago, he embraced Donald Trump, this birther, and validated and authenticated him and said he was a legitimate part of the Republican cosmos. And then when Trump becomes, you know, a problem, Mitt Romney tries to speak out against him, but it's too late. Mitt, you know, you help create the monster by telling the base, by signaling to the base that Trump was okay. So uh, that leads us to the big question about where the Republican Party is today, and are there is there any hope uh, that, if we want to call them whatever, mainstream Republicans can retake back control of the party, or is anybody even trying? Uh, let's take a quick break, David, and get into that when we when we come back on the other side of the uh, Bill Press pod here. Uh, again, our guest today, David Korn, who's the uh, Washington bureau chief for Mother Jones, but author of an important new book, uh, Amer American Psychosis, A Historical Investigation of How the Republican Party Went Crazy. We'll be right back. You know, friends, this is the time of the year uh, when we all try to get those uh, charitable contributions in uh, for two reasons. One, to help those great causes, but also to save a little bit on taxes before the end of the year. Well, here's one favorite of mine and Carol's, which I've recommended to you before and come back to you again. We can't do enough to help the world's central kitchen led by the great Jose Andres. I mean, friends, you know, wherever people are in trouble, suffering from some crisis, either a man-made crisis or a natural disaster, 
Jose Andres and the Royal Central Kitchen are there on the front lines. They're there still in the war in Ukraine. They're there for the flooding in Pakistan. They were there for the hurricane in Florida. Their website, wck.org. Please check it out, wck.org, the World Central Kitchen, and send them whatever help you can for this worldwide global humanitarian effort. They're the best. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back on the Bill Press Pod here. David Korn, Washington Bureau Chief for Mother Jones and uh, editor or author or publisher of the newsletter Our Land, which, by the way, David, I enjoy very, very much. Uh, Thank you, Bill. Yeah, good job. How can people uh, track you down for Our Land? Uh, well, if you want to subscribe to Our Land and the trial subscription is free, mm-hmm. you can go to davidcorn.com, D-A-V-I-D-C-O-R-N.com, and we'll bump you to a page where you can sign up. Or you uh, can go to my Twitter feed, and and I think in my bio, it takes you there as well. Okay. So um, today's Republican Party. Uh, President Biden got in a little trouble, uh, well, maybe a little, with some people at any rate, when he said that uh, the MAGA, the underlying philosophy of the MAGA Republicans, he, he said it was like semi-fascist. Is he right? Well, I think he's right. If you want to, you know, if people want to argue the point, if you have someone who denies election results without evidence, makes baseless charges, incites people to riot uh, to stop the peaceful transfer of power, does nothing while that's happening to defend the Constitution and to defend the peaceful transfer of power, and then says he's going to pardon rioters if he should get back in the White House. And I mean, that is certainly, you know, somewhat fascistic to do that you know denying democracy it's an you know yeah i you know you can call it being an authoritarian and trying to undo the u.s constitution um i gotta tell you bill you know i started this book a little over a year ago and i didn't expect it to be so timely because i think that the historical context that that i discovered that i you know write you know write about in the book gives us the context for the debate we're having now about absolutely MAGA, about no. MAGA extremism, what is yeah. for the party is Trump leading the party towards fascism or not? And what you know, what I found in doing the book and what we've been talking about is that this is not a new issue. You know, if you if Trump, you know, 
went away, you know, if, if he was, you know, sent off to, um, you know, Siberia, which I'm sure he can get a nice place there with his connections. Um, <laughs> and we never heard from him again. The, the, the problem of Trumpism will remain. And I think the book shows that this strain of conservatism and the exploitation of it by the GOP is, has always been there. And you're not going to be able to sort of flick a switch and go back to a, a reasonable Republican party um, and, and go back to just having policy debates. You know, I think there's a bit of a myth that the Republican party prior to Trump, you know, was this wonderful debating society mm-hmm. with people who just had different ideas than, than Democrats. So uh, I'm hoping that the book helps inform us uh, as we try to th- think about what to do today and in the future about regarding the threat posed by Trumpism. I think if you come to the understanding that this is not new, that Trump is a culmination, not an aberration, it sort of changes the way you look at the problem. Well, the president seemed to, uh, he did assert a couple of days later, um, okay, he clarified, I'm not talking about all Republicans, right? Just MAGA Republicans, sort of uh, expressing the hope, if he didn't say it precisely, that um, somehow the mainstream Republicans can kick the MAGA Republicans out and restore the Republican Party to what it once was. What I hear you're saying is that's basically pretty naive and ain't going to happen. Yeah, I I don't think it's going to happen because of where the Republican base voters are. And I think if you look at the history that I lay out in American Psychosis, you understand how the base got that way and that there was never really a golden era of the Republican Party where dealing with extremism, exploiting and encouraging extremism was not a problem. And now that you've done that for 70 years and it's reached, you know, this extreme point, um, I don't think you can just dial it back a bit. I think, you know, it's, it's almost a bit like crossing the Rubicon. You, you, they, they've made it the, um, one of the central elements of the party. It's always been there, but now that it's sort of taken over the party, uh, I don't know how you sort of just, you know, have, you know, an election here or there or, or a conference or a convention and just say, we're not doing that anymore. Uh, it's sort of, you know, with Frankenstein's monster, you know, it was hard to sort of say, oh, we're just going to bring him back to the shop and tinker with him and make things better. Uh, so, the, so, you know, the way I look at it now is that the Republican Party, in some ways, is permanently broken. Uh, you know, it's got to this point for the reasons I lay out in the book, and it's not about replacing parts and getting to a different, getting it back to a better position. I think in some ways it's permanently broken. And if you believe that, it informs and shapes what you think, you know, politics in America should be going forward. If the Republican Party is broken and, and there are 20, 30 percent of the public that can't be reached and they're in the, you know, the grips of um, Trumpism and authoritarianism, you know, you don't waste time trying to persuade them they're, they're wrong. If you believe in a, a psychosis, a political, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're hit by a political psychosis, the election was stolen. You, you can't have a debate with those with someone like that. You can't cha- change their minds. 
So you need to find a way to isolate and contain that element of the population. I mean this politically, not physically. You know, right. you segregate them politically and try to work around that and try to, you know, contain it. So it's as small a portion, although still significant, uh, smallest portion of the, of the population as possible. And unfortunately, they will have disproportionate political power because of gerrymandering and the structure of the Senate. But you want to basically get anybody who, you know, doesn't lean in that direction to understand the threat and to take a step or two away from that portion of the public politically and create a popular front of people who are opposed to authoritarian authoritarianism, but most importantly, who recognize it as a threat. I mean, most Americans, you know, do not agree the election was stolen, do not agree Donald Trump should be president again. I mean, this is a, these are minority positions, you know, held passionately by those who hold them. Right. But the point is the Americans who don't believe that need to understand or be, you know, be convinced that indeed this other group poses a threat. And if you and if you see it that way, that there is a need, a very pressing need, to find a way to counter it. And meanwhile, uh, Donald Trump himself, right, the ringleader, is running again in 2024. If he got in, God forbid, right, what could happen? Yeah, yeah. Democratic I, I, yeah. institutions. You know, I, I've, you know, I've written this numerous times since 2015, that I believe the three things that Donald Trump cares about most in life are revenge, revenge, and revenge. Um, you can throw a little spite into that as well. It overlaps. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, should he, you know, he, we see, you know, we, we see recently stories, you know, um, about how he tried to use the Justice Department to pursue his enemies with criminal um, cases mm -hmm. and that people in, 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 you know, U.S. attorneys had to resist that. This is a guy, you know, as big as his, the chip on his shoulder was before he became president, you know, now it's the size of his debt. So we're talking about <laughs> really, really, really big, right? And, you know, when he comes, if, if, if he should get into power again, you know, his desire for revenge against Republicans, against Democrats, you know, against, you know, Meryl Streep, whoever, is going to be so strong and we're going to get a taste of this. There will be 37 hearings about Hunter Biden. They oh, will, you, you know, yeah. They've already said they're going to call Merrick Garland in and right. accuse him of viol, you know, of, of, of breaking the law by going after Trump at, at Mar-a-Lago. I mean, everything and you know, uh, they're going to go after the. They're going to shut down the IRS. They're going to do everything they can to cause chaos and to serve Donald Trump and his fantasies of vengeance. So uh, we may get a taste of it sooner than 2024. Well, American Psychosis is the book. David Korn, it's just out. Historical Investigation of How the Republican Party Went Crazy. I think, David, what's so important about this book is that you put it in context uh, that we should not be surprised that the Republican Party has turned out this way because this is what the Republican Party is uh, and has always been. Uh, it's just that now they're in uh, the uh, the main circle instead of one of the side circles, and they've got the ringleader uh, in Donald Trump. But um, so very, very important. Great job on the book. Uh, thank you. And uh, we will have a link 
on the in the episode notes to today's podcast or how you can get your copy of American Psychosis. You will learn from it uh, as much as I have. And um, David, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Okay, friends. Hope you enjoyed our revisit with David Korn. I think American Psychosis, huh, it's the perfect title for today's Republican Party, otherwise known as the Trump Party. Now, for years in his column for the Washington Post, Dana Milbank has been following the dramatic change in the Republican Party from respectable mainstream politics to wacky conspiratorial fringe politics, how it went from Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump. Dana wraps it all up in his great book, The Destructionists. Again, what a perfect title. Dana Milbank, uh, good to talk to you. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Thank you, Bill. It's always a pleasure. Uh, and uh, congratulations on the new book, The Destructionists, the 25-year-old, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party. Uh, Dana, I must say, uh, reading this, uh, it's just sort of a summary and account of all the, pardon my phrase, ugly shit that we've lived through for the last 25 years from the Republican Party. Um, my feeling when I finished was, I, I think we're lucky we survived this period. <laughs> well, <laughs> first, I'm sorry to make you relive some of those things. They were, they were painful enough the first time around, Bill. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, hear, I found it uh, in, in, an important exercise because while these things were happening, you know, Newt and Rove and the Iraq War and the, um, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the the demonizing of uh, John Kerry by the uh, Swift yeah. Boats, the Tea Party, the birtherism. I mean, it goes on and on. I was not necessarily, you know, going back and recalling these events that uh, we witnessed, I was seeing them in a new light, uh, in light of what we've seen from Trump, what we saw uh, at the insurrection. You can see there were many aha moments when you said, ah, so this is where that came from. Uh, yeah. There were all yeah. these antecedents uh, that I kept coming back to. Uh, you know, going all the way back to the so-called murder of, uh, of Vince Foster, things that maybe we thought were amusing or wrong, but not, you know, democracy shattering at the time. Right. I think when you, you know, add them up and you compound them, uh, you really begin to see that it was, you know, all accelerating uh, year after year, making Trump uh, uh, possible, I think, if not inevitable. Right. No, I and I think that's the importance of the book. I mean, there is a continuity, right, to this craziness that we didn't realize. It is all connected, and you show that uh, very conclusively, I believe, in the book. I want to ask you first about the title, Destructionist. I mean, that title, uh, that's a pretty powerful title. It carries a lot of meaning within it. Well, yeah, I mean, it actually came up with, uh, you know, we were kicking around ideas and uh, somebody had said the obstructionist. And I was like, come on, that's like a small piece of it is yeah, you know, obstruction, yeah. like filibusters and stuff. I mean, it's not obstruction, it's destruction. They're the destructionist. So that, that that's sort of why we uh, we came to that. And it's, uh, I mean, it's I, I suppose you could say destroyers, but, you know, you could be a destroyer and do it sort of inadvertently. Uh, the uh, destructionist implies that it's uh, more of a uh, avocation 
uh, or perhaps a vocation uh, that you actually get something uh, out of uh, bringing the wheels of government uh, to a halt. That uh, the, the destruction of many of these um, institutions of government serve to benefit the people doing the destroying. Yeah, if I may quote you uh, on page 10 of my copy of the book, in the process, they became the destructionists. They destroyed truth. They destroyed decency. They destroyed patriotism. They destroyed national unity. They destroyed racial progress. They destroyed domestic stability. And they destroyed the world's oldest democracy. Uh, at least they're trying to, right? Maybe they haven't succeeded in that last thing yet. but. Um, that's their agenda, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I mean, uh, and I tried, and you know, I, I use those because in each of those cases, I tried to go through and uh, give examples, example yep. after example, perhaps too many examples <laughs> of how uh, um, each of those uh, things were done. Uh, you know, we, I call it the crack up of the Republican Party. That doesn't mean it's a crack up in an electoral sense. I mean, you know, if history is any uh, judge, they'll pr- probably do well in these uh, midterm elections. I just meant a crack up in terms of the integrity of what mm-hmm. the party stood for. It was, um, uh, you know, in 1994, still an active, good faith participant in the American democratic process. And I don't think you can uh, say that anymore. Uh, and you do see it, you see it in the uh, uh, increasing uh, condoning of uh, violence and uh, illiberalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see it in inviting more and more uh, uh, white supremacists uh, deliberately into the fold to drive more uh, energy. Uh, you see it in the deliberate use uh, of disinformation. Uh, you know, it obviously reached its uh, a peak with the, with the big lie, but has been building for a quarter century. So. Clearly, the Republican Party that we, you and I, once knew, uh, even the party of a Ronald Reagan or a George H.W. Bush, or to a certain extent, George W. Bush, uh, that's clearly no longer the Republican Party that we have today. When did it, when did it start turning? Right. And I think that's a crucial thing to, to uh, point out, Bill, because, I mean, we, we know that George W. Bush could certainly not be uh, win a primary in this Republican Party. Ronald mm-hmm. Reagan could certainly not win a yeah. primary uh, in this re- Republican right. Party. By the definitions we're using uh, of rhinos, uh, they would they would both very easily uh, qualify for that. And, you know, needless to say, uh, Mitt Romney and uh, John McCain would also be out. So, uh, you know, they are they they are not qualified as uh, Republicans um, by this standard. So uh, when did it happen? I think there wasn't um, any one moment. I think it was. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the boiling frog, I think it, uh, I mean, to, to take it in the biggest terms, we go back to, uh, the Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, uh, and immigration mm-hmm. legislation in the 1960s that just sort of fundamentally changed the trajectory America was on, uh, to becoming a participatory democracy, but ultimately becoming a white minority, uh, democracy, which will happen in another 20, 30 years. Uh, and that's underlying uh, what 
all the I, uh, virtually all of the tensions we're seeing in our politics today, and that's been uh, happening since uh, Richard Nixon's uh, Southern strategy. But I, I would say, with the uh, emergence of Newt Gingrich, yep. uh, they turned it up to eleven. I mean, that's when we really started. You know, it was a, it was a passing of the torch to a, a new generation uh, in in politics. Um, the greatest generation was fading from the scene. Uh, the uh, the culture the you know veterans of the culture wars instead were uh, uh, were were now in charge uh, and uh, so I, I I think I I use the uh, 1994 Republican Revolution as the point you can mm-hmm. certainly talk about the influence before that of Lee Atwater and and of Ronald Reagan but I think this is the point uh, where we really started saying okay something has fundamentally changed here. You know, this passing of the torch from Bob Michael, one of the most decent guys uh, who has ever lived to uh, yep. uh, to Newt Gingrich. Uh, so, uh, and then you can see like with each iteration, it became a little more dark, uh, a little more crazy after that. Right. And with Newt, I mean, I've had Republican members of Congress tell me the same thing that you just said, right? It it changed with Newt. With Newt, it was from Newt. With Newt, it became all-out war. Right? Democrats were no longer the opposition; they were the enemy. In exactly. Fact, yes. You you uh, you provide, which I did in a, one of my books too, the list of words uh, that Newt Gingrich actually put out to Republican members of Congress. These are the words that you should use if you're talking about uh, Democrats. Right? Traitor. Uh, I forget. Sick, corrupt, Sick, corrupt cheat, right. mm-hmm. betray, lie, steal. We hear them all today. Uh, and, and so that was all out, all, full-time campaigning right. started with Newt uh, Gingrich, right? Right. And the, po- the point was people, be they were no longer uh, opponents. They were enemies. That, and that's, that, that uh, memo of how to, how to speak came out uh, in 1990. Uh, and, you know, Gingrich by that time had already uh, overthrown uh, Jim Wright as speaker on a, what began as a pretty spurious uh, complaint. Um, but it was that... Um, uh, that language. I mean, you say those words now, and of course, it's commonplace. That that's what right. people yeah. routinely yeah. use in politics. It was shocking uh, back then, um, and it, uh, uh, it that that changed uh, the way people speak in politics, uh, and it, it became you know hand to hand combat every day. Uh, it was not uh, no longer in the Congress about finding consensus. It was about uh, throwing sand in the gears uh, and defeating there, uh, you know, there were there was still a very large core in both parties at that time who still understood uh, the old ways of working. So I think it took some time before it became, uh, you know, completely dysfunctional. There was still Bob Dole uh, in the yeah, Senate to yeah. say, "All right, we're going to we're going to stop this nonsense with the 1995 and 1996 shutdowns now." But they're, uh, they gradually lost those. Uh, voices. So the, each each uh, iteration of uh, crazy, each iteration of uh, dysfunction became a little bit more oppressive than the last. Uh, one of the things that I appreciated in the book is that as you go along and you talk about, and we'll get to some of the other characters, uh, there is also a thread of hypocrisy that runs through them all. I mean, so Newt was out there railing against corruption, n- railing against politicians having extramarital affairs, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and Newt, at the same time, 
I'll let you take it from there, right? Well, yes, of course, was uh, uh, during uh, Clinton's impeachment was carrying on his own uh, extramarital affair. And uh, uh, of course, that is, uh, uh, we're now talking about the uh, former ambassador to the Vatican. Um, um, uh, Look, I mean, it, you know, it, it won't surprise anybody that there's a hypocrisy in politics. That has always uh, been true. But I think what what began with Newt was this new brazenness and this new uh, the the disinformation. It was sort of a lack of you could say things with a lack of regard uh, for whether it was true or not. Um, and uh, it, you know that was that was something fundamentally new. I mean, it, politicians, of course, uh, always have and always will, you know, shade the truth or uh, omit things conveniently. Um, but here you had people boldly saying things uh, that they knew to be false uh, without any sense of uh, shame, uh, without any fear of being uh, uh, called a hypocrite. Uh, it began not to matter. And I think that you know, part of that was Newt. Part of that was the advent uh, of talk radio. This is also the time mm-hmm. when, uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh uh, made his rise. This, you know, Limbaugh was king right then. And, be- and in fact, Republicans called him the majority maker. Uh, uh, so it was the, you know, I call it this this war on truth. It, it really uh, began around then where it was sort of a conscious effort to say it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. You know, the truth is what I'm what I say it is. No. We th- so uh, and, and again, if there's a central theme to your book, I think it is that it didn't start with, as you point out earlier, none of this started with Trump. Right. <laughs> it's been building and building and building and paving the way for Trump and starting with what you were just talking about with the lies. I mean, we think of Trump as the big lie. You point out that New Gingrich got into office. With a lie. Oh, I, I, yes, a, a, a whole bunch of them. Um, and uh, uh, <laughs> Mitch McConnell uh, got into office with the help yeah. of, of Roger Ailes and, and, and a whole bed of, uh, of lies there uh, as well. So, uh, yes, I think um, it, it's, it's very crucial to understand that Trump uh, was not a driver of where the Republican Party has gone. He was merely following it. So I remember very clearly mm-hmm. in 1999 uh, uh, flying on Trump's plane uh, when he was thinking of running for the uh, Reform mm-hmm. Party uh, nomination. Uh, and uh, uh, he was he was conscious of, you know, opposing Pat Buchanan at the time. So he was all about tolerance against racism Mm. for universal health care. He was pro-choice. He was just, you know, fundamentally the opposite of what he became later. And that's what you need to understand about Trump is he's not really um, ideological. Um, uh, All he is, is an opportunist. Uh, So he saw where the Republican Party was going, particularly after uh, the Tea Party uh, wave of uh, 2010. And he said, I'm going to get out in front of that parade. So he basically recreated himself uh, yeah. to match, you know, the sort of the exact basket of issues that he was seeing uh, from the Republican base. And he did it brilliantly. Um, but, uh, but it was very much, uh, he was very much a follower of this trend, not a, uh, uh, not the creator of it. Uh, by the way, just a footnote on Newt Gingrich. We, we, we can't speak of him in the past tense because he is today, uh, a 
he claims at least, a consultant to Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> yes, is it? it well, they've gone full circle. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and he and he's uh, on the board of this uh, America First think tank mm-hmm. that uh, uh, has uh, hosted Trump. And uh, uh, at 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 a forum, he had a he did a one on one exchange with uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy. Yes, they are very tight, and uh, you know we are all living in Newt Gingrich's world. Uh, right now. Uh, and, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, Newt was very pleased with his, uh, uh, his progeny in, in looking at uh, Kevin McCarthy. You referred to the Republican Party at one point as the uh, party of white grievance. To what extent is racism, uh, does racism drive the Republican Party agenda? And since when? Well, so this um, goes back uh, in the in the broadest sense to the 1960s uh, and the you know civil rights, voting rights, uh, immigration changes. Uh, you know Richard Nixon's uh, Southern strategy. Uh, we can go through uh, all of that. I think that set us in motion to where we are now. Um, uh, and again, this is something that happened uh, quite uh, quite gradually over time. Uh, but uh, and accelerated uh, during uh, during the Trump times. But uh, you know, as we approach uh, white minority um, status uh, in this country, you, know, you look at the say the the autopsy the Republican Party did after twenty twelve. Oh, yeah. I mean, they've they've lost the popular vote. I think it, I, I don't have it in front of me. I think it's you know seven of the last uh, uh, eight uh, presidential contests. Uh, the autopsy after Mitt Romney's law said, hey, look, we have to appeal to uh, black, uh, Latino and other uh, uh, racial uh, minorities or we're going to be out in the cold. That's just, you know, it's a demographic uh, fact. Um, And uh, uh, Trump's innovation was to say, well, if we stoke uh, the... uh, uh, the fears of that uh, uh, of the of the white majority as it gradually approaches minority status, we can get them to turn out in ever larger number. Uh, and you've seen that with that with the the white evangelical Protestants who are mm-hmm. voting at much higher rates than their proportion uh, in the population. So, uh, in, in to some extent, this has been happening. Uh, since the 60s, to a very great extent, it's been happening uh, since the 1990s. And you see uh, the uh, uh, white, uh, less educated, uh, religious, uh, you know, middle America voting in a much higher proportion. So that it's been, uh, it, it, race has been absolutely key uh, to the Republicans' ability to uh, maintain uh, their presence. Which uh, evolved also, in, in, as you point out, into kind of an early, if support may be too wrong a word, but tolerance of white nationalists, white nationalism, even after Oklahoma City, you know, Newt Gingrich is saying, well, you know, these anti-government, it, it, it sort of was an early echo of Trump, these anti-government militias, there's some, there's some pretty fine people there, right? They're not violent. I'm- uh, pretty fine people on both sides. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, so you, on the one hand, you had you know the increasing tolerance of racism 
mm-hmm. in the party, I think, necessary to uh, generate the greater turnout of the white voters to elevate uh, the threat that they feel. And uh, there is a lot of overlap between the two, but there is somewhat of a distinction, too. There's also the anti-government crowd, the militia crowd, right, right. Uh, the patriot movement. So this uh, uh, for, uh, first rose in, well, it's risen at various times in American uh, history, but it uh, rose in the 1990s. Uh, it faded during George W. Bush's uh, presidency. It came roaring back. Um, uh, but it, it, you've seen a parallel efforts uh, among Republican leaders to sort of uh, tap the enthusiasm uh, of the, uh, uh, the anti-government extremists, tap the enthusiasm uh, of the white supremacists. But inevitably, this meant opening up the curtain of the party and letting them in, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, a, a little more uh, with each iteration until you have, you know, uh, Proud Boys uh, stand by. Uh, so it, 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 in each of these uh, iterations, it just sort of uh, was, was necessary to bring in uh, those, the, the extremists, whether they were anti-government extremists or whether they were um, uh, uh, racial uh, extremists. You know, the party of Ronald Reagan was for limited government. Uh, the party right now, as we see, is sort of anti-government, uh, and that was a gradual evolution. Uh, and you could draw a line, as you do, you know, right through that, all the way up to January 6th. <laughs> it's almost, you could predict that's where it would end up, Right. Yeah, I mean, you could, or or someplace like it, and if it didn't happen in uh, January 6th of uh, uh, 2021, it would have happened uh, at some other point. But, you know, you see the uh, erosion of uh, 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 democracy uh, at various points. Like you, saw, you saw it in uh, Bush v. Gore and then in the intimidation used uh, in Miami Dade during uh, the recount um, in 2000. Uh, you saw it in uh, the Supreme Court uh, gutting uh, the Voting Rights Act and in Citizens United uh, uh, essentially shattering any sense of uh, campaign finance reform. Um, you've, you've seen in, uh, you know, Tom DeLay calling in the FAA and the FBI to stalk down Democratic lawmakers as he overnight uh, uh, has Texas redistricted to remove six uh, Democratic uh, House seats. Uh, you know, you see it in the, you know, the, the constant gerrymandering, which has uh, um, it led at one point to Democrats would have to have won the popular vote by seven percentage points to even break even uh, in the House. So an increasing anti-democratic uh, tendencies uh, uh, were happening uh, all along the way and leaving it ripe for that. So you can say it predicts the uh, the January 6th insurrection, it predicts instability and a loss of faith in democracy. I We focus so much on Donald Trump. Um, uh, I had sort of forgotten until reading your book uh, how many lies and how, how much um, skullduggery, I guess, that we also experienced under George W. Bush, particularly thanks to um, his guy Karl Rove, right, where they took... Um, having promised to bring the country together after September 11, uh, they turned the war on terror into a political, a political weapon using against the Democrats or using the Democrats, right? Who, yes. Who wouldn't support the war in Iraq or the Patriot Act as being traitors, pro-terrorists. Yes. 
Yes, it was, and it was a very deliberate decision in uh, the very early part of uh, 2002 uh, to campaign on the war. Uh, it, you know, even though that was uh, a moment uh, of national unity. Uh, you know, I think you know a, a, a crucial moment in our politics was uh, the selling uh, of the Iraq War. You know, Carl mm-hmm. Rove being key in that, uh, Dick Cheney being uh, another key oh, yeah. player in that. And you know, of course, the irony now is his daughter is leading the fight uh, against the disinformation and in a way her her father had a very real role in creating that uh you know it was dick cheney who was saying you know reagan proved that deficits don't matter it was uh uh, dick cheney constantly uh blaming um uh, saddam hussein for the 9-11 attacks uh dick cheney and carl rove you know uh, and, and, and George W. Bush constantly exaggerating, uh, and it turns out inventing in some cases from whole cloth, the nuclear threat posed by Iraq or saying we would be greeted as liberators. So, uh, that entire war, uh, was, was fought on the basis of a lie. Now, yes, the underlying intelligence wasn't great, but even when the underlying intelligence was completely correct, they distorted it. Uh, so I, I think that really softened uh, us up uh, quite a bit uh, mm-hmm. to the uh, to the disinformation um, um, that would come later. And you know, the, the the questioning of patriotism was also just sort of a fundamental innovation of that time. You know, remember the uh, the ad going after Max Cleland, a triple yeah. amputee oh, yeah. from yeah. Vietnam basically morphing him into uh, uh, Saddam Hussein and uh, Osama bin Laden or juxtaposing him uh, in the ad and the the swift boating of John Kerry, making it look as if he uh, uh, lied to get his uh, war decorations. and Even John McCain, they were after questioning his... Yeah, so um, that that combination of using disinformation to to, uh, enact, you know, the, the most serious decision a government can make going to war and using patriotism um, as a weapon. Uh, those were unfortunately two of the biggest innovations uh, of, of the Bush era. Our guest, Dana Milbank, his new book, The Destructionists, The 25-Year Crack-Up of the Republican Party. It didn't all start with Donald Trump, but it's been building up to Donald Trump. And um, if it started uh, way back with Newt Gingrich and the others, Dana, but Still, Trump was able to, uh, as you point out, the the way was paved for him. But he was able to take over the Republican Party because there were people like Lindsey Graham, right, Uh, or Kevin McCarthy, who Mitch McConnell, who just uh, Ted Cruz, who didn't want anything to do with, and then just totally folded uh, for Donald Trump. How I, I get the question all the time. I'll throw it to you. What the hell happened to Lindsey Graham? How can you explain <laughs> that? Well, yeah, what happened to Lindsey Graham? What happened to Mitch McConnell? What happened yeah. to uh, Ted Cruz? What happened to Kevin McCarthy? Although, who knows where? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he, right. He might have an excuse. That Marco he wasn't, Rubio, uh, any of them. Yeah. Um, Look, I think in the uh, it was self-interest in the in, in you know primarily uh, you know people saw. Uh, you know, it was self-interest that drove Donald Trump to become Donald Trump. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. They saw where this party was going. They wanted to uh, stay relevant 
they adjusted. Uh, you know, they legitimized Trump. They became his enablers so that they could uh, stay relevant. You know, as, as Lindsey Graham says, in terms of you know contributing to policy and the debate, but also so they didn't get booted out of office. I mean, the uh, the idea of uh, uh, you know promoting purity to the party. This has been going on. So, you know, the Club for Growth started in I think it was 1999, and Heritage Action and the Republican Study Committee. And and the uh, Freedom Caucus um, had all been uh, pointing um, in this direction uh, as well. So, uh, you know, I think it was uh, it was self interest and a, a notion that uh, well, it's 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 been an evolution, right? We start with the uh, you know the rise of uh, conservative talk radio and, and Rush Limbaugh. We have the era of the Drudge Report, and uh, we have the uh, early era of, of Fox News, which you know, quickly devolves into uh, uh, the Glenn Beck moment. And Tucker Carlson today is, but, you know, just an imitation of what Glenn Beck was uh, a dozen uh, or 15 years ago. Um, And of course, uh, you know, it's been fueled by uh, uh, social media, which is not, uh, you know, that's not a unique problem uh, on the right. It it happens on the left as well. It has siloed everybody uh, so that we're only getting uh, news that reinforces our view. Uh, the problem is, uh, you know, uh, with the Fox News uh, uh, ecosystem, uh, people are only getting false news <laughs> is reinforcing uh, their view. So it is, you know, it is unquestionably uh, made things worse uh, mm-hmm. within within the party and where it was going. Uh, you know, but there are so many other factors, as we've discussed. The uh, uh, the racial factor, uh, the uh, uh, the uh, anti-government uh, uh, factor, um, you know, the disinformation outside of, uh, of Fox News. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, it's hard to tease out how much of this would have happened if Rupert Murdoch and, and Roger Ailes uh, didn't exist. I suspect something else would have filled that vacuum because uh, we saw from the late 80s on that uh, things were heading in that direction. And and there was also the, as you point out, the evangelical factor, right, with people like Gary Bauer and Ralph Reed uh, and uh, back to Jerry Falwell, uh, who seems mild compared to the evangelicals today. Right. But uh, uh, yeah. they, 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 they formed this uh, alliance with the Republican Party, and the Republican Party has basically adopted their extreme conservative agenda right I, I mean the uh you know I, I go back through the history of the christian coalition and you know yeah. ralph reed before he was sort of an all-purpose uh you know hustler uh <laughs> making money for himself from the uh conservative movement you know that was a uh a key change for uh religious conservatives became uh very intensely involved you know I, I, people you know, think this all began with the uh, 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 with abortion uh, and, and Roe v. Wade. That was largely a, a Catholic uh, objection. There, uh, the uh, evangelical Christians be- got onto that issue and became more uh, political uh, uh, significantly later than that. But they, yes, so, so that that was another uh, uh, phenomenon that increased uh, in the 1990s, much more. Uh, partisan uh, effect uh, of, of the uh, evangelical Christians uh, who are, you know, 
uh, proved to be a pretty heavy plurality of those keeping uh, Donald Trump in office, and in, in large part because they were voting uh, in, in numbers so much greater than their representation in the population. Do you see any uh, sign today that Trump's influence um, is starting to wane a little bit? Well, yes, but it is. I, but Trumpism's influence isn't starting uh, to wane at uh, all. So, yeah. um, in that sense, does it matter if it is Donald Trump saying it or if it's Ron DeSantis saying it? Or mm. um, I, I, I mean, I suppose it makes a little bit of a difference. But um, I, 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 because uh, Donald Trump didn't create this situation, uh, the the gradual disappearance of Trump from the scene, because he will eventually disappear, um, is not going to change uh, the situation that we're in fundamentally. It has already become uh, an illiberal uh, faction, uh, this party. It has cast its lot in uh, with you know, having minority power minority political power. Um, and uh, uh, there's no real way out of that. Um, so, uh, you know, if you are uh, other than, you know, democracy is working against the Republican Party because of demographics. So the only way it survives in its current state is to fight against democracy. And that's happens whether Trump is here or not. So there are some brave souls out there. You know them. I know them. Um, Charlie Sykes at the Bulwark and uh, um, Bill Kristol. Uh, Dan Quayle's former chief of staff, one of the chief architects of the Iraq war, Liz Cheney, of course, who are saying, no, you know, we're holding our own and we're going to bring the Republican Party back. Right. We're going to get back to what the Republican Party was all about, the party of ideas and little government and and policies and and get rid of this Trumpism. Uh, Are they just blowing smoke? Is there any hope, do you think, that that uh, they can the Republican Party, the whole Republican Party we once knew can never come back. Look, I see. I mean, look, I more power to them. They're doing God's work, but I, I see zero evidence that that they're having that effect at all. I I think uh, it's it's too few of them, and it's too little, and it's too late. Uh, you know, there was a there was a time in 2016 where they could have gotten together and said, "Okay, this has gone too far," um, mm-hmm. but they uh, they didn't do that. Uh, they. Uh, uh, they folded you know, one by one and said, all right, we're going to just uh, uh, make a deal with the devil. And I think from that moment on, you, I mean, people hoped that there would be a change, but uh, uh, it seemed uh, that it was too late. Um, now, that doesn't mean that you know, there won't be people who vote Republican who can't stand uh, the MAGA movement and, and Trumpism. That will still occur. Uh, it doesn't mean the Republican Party um, can't win uh, in the near term, uh, you know, even in its current, uh, structure. Um, but I, I, it, I see, I see virtually no hope, uh, that the, that the party can regain where it was. I mean, I, I often talk with the people I used to cover in the George W. Bush white house and say, can you remind me what we were all arguing about like it seemed like there were some big fights at the time but um in retrospect they were you know they were all pretty narrow uh narrow arguments and uh uh it, it really is a it's it, it they they are they are essentially on the same side that uh that we are and that was the side of democracy and that is unfortunately not winning at the moment we, yeah i mean it looks it's almost quaint 
right? When it seems almost quaint, when we look back at some of the things we were arguing about, right, or writing about, and 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 yes, you know, the the size of uh, you know and structure of tax bills, and are we funding social security? I mean, welfare reform. Hey, these were good discussions to be had. We were not discrediting uh, elections and uh, using Stalinist terms about the uh, uh, the enemy of the people, media, and uh, inviting. uh, a Hungarian fascist to address CPAC. Uh, so, as you just said, uh, today it's democracy that is on the line. Uh, let me just ask you to to sum up. Um, given uh, all your reporting, uh, uh, all your experience, and your uh, observations of the political scene today, uh, are you confident that our democracy will survive? Well, Bill, I uh, threw out my crystal ball after I said the <laughs> yeah. Republican voters are too good to uh, to give us Donald Trump in 2016. So I had to eat my column for that. Uh, look, I have boundless optimism in the long run um, that we will uh, uh, get through this. Um, in the short, I don't don't know how bad it's going to be in the short term. Look, there is mm. going to be, you know, we are becoming a multicultural majority country. That's going to happen. There, you if you stopped immigration today, that's still going to happen. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I'm, you know, I'm uh, confident that our uh, children and grandchildren will be able to rebuild what has been lost. The question is, how much more has to be lost uh, in the short term? Um, and 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 the medium term, uh, and I'm not very optimistic there. I I, I think the all the incentives for um, the Republican Party now are to continue on this path, which means mm-hmm. uh, e- uh, bringing ever more uh, violent rhetoric, ever more uh, white nationalist uh, beliefs, uh, ever more disinformation to try to uh, sustain this uh, this this state of unreality. Uh, so that could still go on for many years. Right. Get worse before it gets better, as you say in the book. Uh, Dana, thank you so much for your good work, and thank you for your for joining us today on the podcast. Again, friends, the book is The Destructionist by Dana Milbank, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party. Uh, there'll be a link to buy the book. Uh, you should buy it and read it, a link on the episode notes to today's podcast. Uh, Dana, Great to talk with you again. Uh, Keep up the good fight. Bill, it is. uh, Thank you. It's been great to talk with you. And you keep up the fight as well. We all have to do our part. And that's a wrap for today's holiday special on the Bill Press Pod. Now, we'll be back on Tuesday, December 27, with a regular podcast discussing the life and legacy of Speaker Nancy Pelosi, joined by Susan Page, author of her best-selling biography of Pelosi, Madam Speaker. And then a week from today, next Friday, we're going to revisit what are, in my opinion, the best two books on the Trump presidency by Peter Baker, the New York Times, and his wife, Susan Glasser, from The New Yorker, and by Maggie Haberman, who covered the Trump White House for The New York Times. But for now, we wish you a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. We'll see you next Tuesday with Susan Page on the next edition of The Bill Press Pod. 